Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Shanak. Welcome to the show. Uh, Brandon, great to be here. Likewise. Thank you for joining me today. How is your week going so far, sir? Well, um, week is going well. It's already Thursday. So, you know, we are on the other side of the hump. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun, at least I hope. <laughs> no, we, we, we do have a lot of fun here. So, you know, it's not that I look, for the, look forward for the weekend, but yeah, it's always nice to have that, uh, you know, the weekends are always good for us, but but definitely we are having a lot of fun building the company or whatever I'm doing on a daily basis. So Yeah, I think my CEO once told me if you look forward to the weekends, you're you're in the wrong job. <laughs> yes, I mean, looking forward for the weekend for the right reasons, I would say, right? I mean, if the reason is that, oh, I don't want to work, I mean, that's the problem. Yeah, totally, totally right. And, and I, I do think... Time off and time to recharge is important, but you're using your words. If you're looking forward to the weekend for the wrong reasons, you know, you're in the wrong job. Yeah, I would agree to that. Awesome. So I wanted to open up with like a mini rant and I wanted to get your opinion on this as well. So before we jump in, I stumbled across this post on LinkedIn that a couple of weeks ago that I felt was a little subjective. And it went something along the lines of, you shouldn't ask your guests to introduce themselves because A, nobody cares and you can put it in the show notes. And B, it makes the host look like they didn't do their homework and you don't like appreciate them being on the show, i.e. it's um, unprofessional. But I feel personally that it helps build rapport with the audience as well as setting the stage and I wouldn't want to mess up my guest's story and positioning of themselves. So what is your opinion on introducing yourself versus the host introducing you? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And I would agree with you because I do believe that, you know, if I want to know about somebody, I can just go to Google and search their name and I pretty much, you know, find everything about their basic information. But um, if I really want to know somebody, I want to hear the stories and, you know, you know, we we have different stories, and depending on who we are speaking with, we may tell something. So I, I'm that's most curious for me. Like you know, so I do agree that it's a good idea for the guests to introduce uh, themselves, um, which I'm happy to do now. Yes, please. Now that I've set the stage and got off my high horse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I think for me, a uh, very short version is um, I run a company called called Yellow Dig. Um, it's a SaaS uh, product for higher education. Um, started the company back in 2015, so I've been running it for the last seven years. Uh, before that, I spent almost a decade in a variety of corporate roles, uh, strategy, consulting, corporate director roles um, in technology in various functional areas, um, engineer by training, undergrad in mechanical engineering, um, and then grad in uh, systems engineering. So I kind of traversed the world from engineering to business and then business to, I would say, entrepreneurship. That's what I've been doing for the last seven years. Well, thank you for, for sharing. And um, 
my my favorite one of my favorite parts of the show. I always ask my guests to share one fun fact about themselves. So if you wouldn't mind indulging us. Well, you know, um one fun fact is I'm starting to kind of learn new things um as running an education company it's kind of almost I feel the best way to learn how people learn is by doing new things and see what really kind of helps in that learning process. So I'm um I've been learning uh skating. Uh, basically roller skating, which I have been afraid of for a long time for, for a variety of reasons, but I finally made up my mind and I've been doing this for the last six months or so and I love it, actually. So uh, I don't know if it's going to be fun or not, but I, that's gonna, I'm quite funny for me that I finally decided to do it. Oh, well, hopefully your investors took out insurance on you in case <laughs> anything does happen. <laughs> well, the worst case is a broken bone. It's, it's fine. We can recover from that. So to open up the show, I was thinking we could explore some trends that you're seeing or acting upon in the market right now. Well, I mean, there are some you know macroeconomic trends that impacts every business and there are trends that are happening that are very specific to higher education or education in general that we are part of you know macroeconomic wise i think the the one of the biggest uh, impacts that all of us have lived through is uh, the covid-19 or whatever the pandemic which is we're almost kind of through that uh, which i think has done a quite a few big changes uh, in terms of people's work habits learning habits things that people are prioritizing in terms of shifting of needs in various jobs and industries, um, you know, those are opening up tremendous amount of opportunities. And we do benefit from the learning side because, you know, as remote work becomes more relevant, people are, you know, are changing professions. They are, you know, we have heard about people quitting jobs at record rates and they're also kind of trying new things, maybe starting a company or, you know, building new skill skills based on, the true interests um, that has been a big trend over the last, uh, I would say, six months to a year, uh, that impacts us, benefits us in some some sense. Um, from an educational standpoint, um, you know, we work with colleges, universities, schools, corporate training programs. Uh, a big trend there is digitization. Um, you know, especially with COVID, as most schools became, you know, from you know, all uh, offline to online. And now with COVID gone, maybe some schools are coming back to, you know, offline, but it wasn't, but a lot of behavior has changed. People are asking for um, programs that are, you know, blended or online so that they have much more flexibility. So that's a big trend in education now. If you, you know, walk into any big university now, I mean, a lot of the schools are designing or launching online programs, online MBAs or blended MBAs where you can keep your job, but maybe show up once a month. Um, to do your uh, classes, uh, but you know, do not compromise on the quality is a big trend, and that's something we are leveraging uh, for our business. And would you mind maybe going a little deeper into that in terms of you know the your, the strategies you're you're adjusting to based on when COVID hit and now with the recession, what strategies are you using to keep the business growing with all the change that's been happening? Yeah, so, you know, there are two kind of broad aspects of this change, you know, for us as a company or applies to many other companies. This is the, what happens to the need, right? So is the product that we have, um, I can tell more about the product, actually is the need going up or down, right? So if I had a book or, you know, traditional textbook, people are buying less of that, but they're buying more digital content. So given we are a technology company, I think the need has gone up, which is great for us. Um, the other part of the equation is uh, how do we monetize that need? So from a buyer standpoint, 
you know, budgets or how they're buying, how are those behavior changing and how we are reacting to it. So, um, you know, specifically, I would say for us, um, you know, Yellowdig is a connected learning experience platform. So what we essentially do is if you work with the institution, um, if they are completely, you know, brick and mortar, in-person learning, uh, or they have some online programs, we help them, you know, kind of uplift their offerings to much more engaging, much more connected experience for the learner so that they can be anywhere in the world, but still have a very similar experience from, you know, interacting with peer groups, interacting with faculty, sharing knowledge, asking questions, all the things that happen in a physical space does not often happen in online space, but we kind of, our platform helps them offer that level of experience to their learners. So that's kind of our product. And as you would imagine, with COVID, and especially with the movement towards online and blended, I mean, that is quite, uh, the need has definitely gone up for those kind of products as schools are looking for attracting learners who are not you know, always necessarily in a, in a, in a campus environment. Um, from a buying cycle standpoint, um, that's a constant iteration for us. Um, you know, there are lots of changes happening, like there are new ways of funding these programs now. The government has many programs. You know, the stimulus money has been a big factor of schools moving online and kind of resourcing those programs. So we look into that. Um, we have um, other types of budgets that we kind of, you know, tap into from an academic standpoint, from an IT standpoint. Buyers, I would say, um, traditionally, the buyers always have been uh, institutional leadership, which is the president, the provost, the deans who kind of decide the long-term kind of you know platforms they want to adopt. But increasingly, we are seeing even faculties are deciding what they want to use in their courses and programs and also buying technology directly. So uh, we, we kind of launched that uh, uh, kind of faculty, direct-to-faculty uh, channel uh, last year you know, during COVID. And that channel has done quite well for us to kind of spread our technology in various schools. You touched on the buying process and the needs. So how, how has that changed? Have, have you had to adjust pricing or have you had to focus more on like the product hammering in the value of your solution? Like how have you adjusted, I guess, since the recession? Hit yeah, about so that? if you think about from a macro standpoint, education is ten- tends to be counter cyclic to any recessionary environment. So if you say that we are in a recession, what happens is people actually look for opportunities for reskilling, upskilling, or if they lose a job, they want to go back to school in some capacity to kind of, you know, build new skill sets till they find a new job. So so traditionally, most institutions would see um, increase in demand when the economy falls. So this particular scenario we are living through, if it is a recession, I formally call it a recession, it's slightly different and unique because we are coming out of COVID, a pandemic. Um, you know, there was a huge amount of stimulus that came through the system. And now... Um, you know, the economy is coming back, but there are all sorts of other things which are at play. So it remains to be seen what happens in the cycle. But based on what we are seeing, there is no reason for us to think that the demand will fall. I think it'll either be similar or it'll go up overall. But that does not mean that there won't be shifts internally. Like to give an example, um, traditional higher education enrollment, which is you know, undergrad programs, you know, every university has one, community college and others, those are actually going down, which is they are seeing less and less students coming in to those programs. So if they had a thousand students last year, they tend to seeing like five, 10% drop 
um, in the last couple of years, numbers have actually, those are average like 5 to 10% drops in a lot of schools for those traditional programs. But on the other hand, um, online hybrid programs are seeing a lot of non-traditional learners who traditionally would not go to college, but they are going back to college to get a certificate program or you know get a certification in digital marketing or any other of these kind of trade-ready skills. Um, they're seeing much higher demand there. So there is a shift in demand right now, which is happening, which of course the institutions have to kind of adjust to the supply of that. Right? You have to kind of adjust your programs to meet that demand, which is shifting. But if you look at overall, I think overall it's it, the story is pretty still pretty strong for education. There's not much margin for error in your decision making and your kind of commitment to whichever way you go. Yeah, I mean, if you are if you get into a school, you're pretty much stuck with it with that program, right? So so you you have to do your own research and make sure that you're getting into the right program. And in the good news is that now we have social media, right? People are sharing about their experiences. So it's not that hard to find out, you know, the quality of a program. At the same time, for the schools also, it's not that hard to for them to, you know, make sure that they have to improve the quality to be able to attract the right students. So um, so I, I think I think there are, you know, I mean, I would just summarize it by saying that, you know, we are going through this big shift in higher education overall. Because reducing cost, using technology, online offerings, increasing access so that more people can participate, but at the same time, maintaining or increasing quality because now you have all these technology tools, including our product. We, we exactly play in that space to make sure that you know they are not stagnant and they are not just you know repeating the old, but actually innovating, creating the future. So, so I think there is a tremendous amount of opportunity to kind of build meaningful businesses right now. But what won't work is if you just do the old things. You know, that's not going to work unless, because, you know, that's almost kind of, you know, you know dying right now from, and from that perspective. I, I wanted to shift to community. And I know that that's also part of your offering and part of the strategy. So as a community builder myself, I, I think community building is somewhere on the top of the list in terms of trendy things to do uh, in, in startups and tech startups alongside product-led growth. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the power of community and where you see it being the most impactful for both companies and customers. I, I think community is increasingly becoming important, you know, because we are increasingly living very isolated lives. Right. I mean, think about what has happened with COVID. Like people used to go to an office, you would naturally have a community. But now, you know, work is becoming more flexible. So you go into office once a week, twice a week. Sometimes you don't have go have to go into office, right? I mean, because those things are now possible. Um, your work gets done, but what you're lacking is a community. And we all know there are advantages of having those communities from a variety of reasons, like retention. Like people tend to stick around if they feel they're part of a community. Uh, they get value, like think, you know, new ideas or new questions, new answers get answered very quickly. So, you know, I mean, we have always known community is valuable, right? This is something, you know, people always, you know, this is the entire modern economy has been kind of built around it so that you have offices, you have campuses and things like that. Um, but but going forward, I think it's going to be even more valuable for a variety of reasons. Um the key question is how to build communities and how to sustain communities because I think it is not easy. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know whether you'll agree with me or not, but um, just because having a space where people can come together doesn't mean there is a community. It just means there's space. Same thing online. You you have a software tool, um, you know, where you can add the people and you think that there is community, but there is no unless they actually build that connection with one another. Um, so I would call it, you know, more connections as opposed to communities and how much connections people are forming with how many people, how often, what what's the quality of that connection that they're forming with one another, what kind of value exchange is happening is how communities are formed. So in our company, you know, what we do is that we build communities for learning environments. So for a college or a university or corporate training programs, um, we focus on learning because we think that's a very unique design need as opposed to community for other needs. Um, and the things we focus on there is around, um, you know, how do we create incentives and productize that experience so that people come back, they interact with one another, they start to kind of get to know one another, um, and they actually uh, get value out of it so that they come back more and more. Um, so, so those are the various KPIs we focus on. We measure it, we share it, we kind of make sure that we are engaging with the community managers to for them to know how things are going and things like that. So there's a lot of things that go go around what we do, but but overall, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort to kind of really get a community going. But then the 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 upside is very high. The ROI is very high, high retention and many other things that happen, um, as you probably very well know. Yeah, community for sure. Like you said, it's not easy. And just because you build a space for people doesn't mean they're going to interact with each other. And even free communities are not a guarantee uh, of success. I'm a firm believer in community design. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, but it's kind of like more of a programmatic approach and, and like productizing community. So there's structure and it's almost like a product in itself. That for me, I've found to sort of be revolutionary. And without it, I feel like it's kind of like a Twitter, you know, free for all. What have you found to be successful, the successful ingredients in building a community from the ground up, like the early days of, of building a community? Yeah. Getting that traction. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Say. And the one thing I'll kind of mention, you mentioned Twitter. And I actually would argue that Twitter is not a community, you know, because one of the fundamental pieces of a community is that you have to have, you know, very even distribution of voices where if there are 100 members in a community, at least a good portion has to speak up and, you know, be heard and be discussed. But if you, if you look at uh, Twitter uh, as a platform, one of the big challenges there is that only a minority of people has a huge amount of voice. Um, and there are various ways of gamifying that system too, so that their voice only goes towards that direction. Um, if you look at Facebook, one of the problems I know is that the echo chamber effect, which is you know if the community only hears one side of the argument and not hearing the other side of the argument, which is... If I'm on Facebook, I only see my friends and I'm only being fed content, which I probably will agree with or disagree with. You know, it, they tend to be on one side and, and because of reasons that drives engagement, because people get more excited when they kind of, you know, it, it's a confirmation bias that happens. So, so in my mind, you know, one of the big facts of designing a good community is to be able to create value for the 
user base. It's not just a matter of them coming to the platform and consuming content, but I actually see true value from one another. Um, so, which as you, to your point, what you mentioned, which is, um, I think the you said design or intentional design driven communities are extremely important. And we do that same thing. Um, you know, we call it gameful learning, but there is a very kind of clear design in place to drive that engagement. Um, and, and yeah, I think that is extremely important. And there are various ways of designing it, but to be able to create certain rules so that people can come in, it's everybody can participate. Uh, if if one voice is getting overly heard, that, that has to be reduced so that it doesn't become one-sided. Um, there, are, there has to be certain rules in place so that people follow some guidelines because, um, you know, a great community can very quickly die if for whatever reason people are not following the guidelines, right? So, and kind of productizing that as much as possible so that you don't need a community manager to always check for those things because that's so much humanly possible adds value because the community can run by itself. Um, so there are a variety of things that come into place to design a community, uh, but I think the key word is intention intentionality. So what I typically say is that just because you build it doesn't mean they will come. I think there has to be a clear strategy to drive that engagement. Um, and as much of that engagement is driven by the users themselves, through certain incentive programs or design or gameful learning, better off it is because then they will take more ownership in, in that community. Great points. And just to clarify, I agree with you. Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook, they're not communities. You could, you can argue that you can create communities within them, but I agree with you. They're, they're not communities. What I meant was like, if you don't have any programmatic structure to to your community it kind of becomes like this free-for-all noisy place like the best analogy i can give for example is like slack slack channels tend to be very noisy and almost twitter-like i think it's mainly down to the platform it doesn't allow you too much flexibility the design of the platform wasn't really structured for modern community building. And I think there are a lot of platforms today that are, do a better job of creating the infrastructure to create better communities. And what I mean by that is, you know, more organization and thoughtful uh, UX touches that help people connect and it's, it's, it's easier to follow, etc. Small things, but with big impacts. So that's kind of where I was going with the no, Twitter. No, I 100% um, agree with what, comment. that comment. I 100% agree. And I, I think the platform has a big role to play. And you know, the, the platform is designed for that engagement. It tends to work. Otherwise, it won't work in that just to build communities. When would you not recommend companies go down the community route? You know, so companies that are only focused on a few things, which is they are focused on you know, individual you know, employee productivity where each, you know, let's say I'm, you know, let's say it's a call center and every employee has a clear script, what they have to do. Um, and, you know, they, they, they basically do their job and there is nothing much more to do. There's no interaction needed. If somebody leaves a job, it's very easy to replace them with somebody else. Um, it's a, I, I would say lower skill uh, where it's a very repetitive process. We are seeing less of that because a lot of that is getting automated now. So I think, you know, AI will probably automate a lot of that in the future, but if you are building an organization which is based on culture and ideas where things change fast and you're kind of being nimble and reacting to the market needs, which is a vast majority of businesses now, um, you need a community. 
um, where people can, um, you know, a share knowledge with one another, and the other thing is to feel that they part, they belong um, to a tribe, and they know they are not just replaceable. I mean, they they have friends, they know people, you know, they can you know feel that they are part of an the organization, the very you know very meaning of an organization. So. Uh, I, I think that's where community is needed. So every company needs one. The question comes, what kind of a community you want to build? Um, um, because um, if, as you said, if it's not well-designed, it can become uh, just a, you know, a distraction, right? I mean, I think, I think, I think the decision is not to whether to have a community or not. I think everybody needs one. The question is that what is the type of a community you want to build? Um, and I would say that prioritizing for knowledge Building and connection building is probably the most important thing. Sharing of files with one another, there are many ways of doing it. Slack can do it. Many other tools are there, but they cannot probably do the first two. And I think those two are most important. Yeah, it's a great point. And actually it was one of my questions. What type of community do you build and when? Because let's use the uh, use case of a startup. There's so much to do. But if you if you don't do it in the beginning, you're falling into the bolting on community after the company sort of already has a sort of life of its own and you know it's an it's sort of an afterthought so i'm just curious to hear from you your thoughts on that and how you did your community and when did you decide to to start yeah i think you know in the early days as a startup company you know one of the advantages is that the team tends to be small uh, and the people who are very passionate, they come for a very you know particular reason to join a company. Um, so just because of the kind of people tend to join startups, they tend to know each other very well, and they tend to work with one another very well and innovate. Um, so for startup companies, I think you know the community is natural. You don't may you may not need a tool and design for that to happen. I mean, if you have Slack or any other tool where people can talk to one another. Um, it will form if, if you have the culture where people are working with one another. Um, but I think the need increases uh, for mid to mid-sized to larger size companies where you know there are so many teams and so many different roles people have. Um, people don't tend to know one another that well, even in the same function because they are in different locations, uh, whatnot, working remotely. Um, and um, and they're having a community where people can go and. You know, through some programming, can actually get to know one another is quite powerful. Uh, because um, if you do not have it, um, assuming that it's happening, is I don't think it happens. Uh, because some people will. I mean, maybe the most extroverted people will reach out and make friends, but a vast majority of people who you really want to engage are not going to engage. So you 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 need some sort of a strategy to kind of get them engaged with one another using a tool. Like you know, could the tool could be. Um, you know, there are a variety of tools available, but I think the, the the strategy behind those tools are important. So if you're using Slack to build a community, it's most likely not going to come together because the tool is not designed for community building. So if you choose one of those tools that's designed for community building and then think about a strategy to see how to implement it, I think then it might work. Uh, that was interesting that you said that. Communities can be advantageous not only for the company and the customers, but also for the employees to interact with each other yeah so that was the, what i was speaking to which is getting the employees into a community will help in terms of knowledge transfer so that they have more connections with one another that leads to all the values 
I think to your point, I think it becomes more and more important as you scale. Um, you know, at a smaller scale, you know, I have found that, you know, it kind of comes together naturally. The culture is there for people to work to one another. You've spent a, a decade advising global companies on technology, strategy, and growth. So I would like to use those lenses in which to answer my rapid fire questions, but with another lens of like the early stage startups in order to give our audience some tactical takeaways, hopefully, if that fits your wheelhouse. All right. Okay, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> so first question, what has been your biggest aha moment from advising companies on strategy and growth? I think the biggest aha moment was um, that when you get a group of people from different functions together in a room and you have them discuss their problems with one another, they can very quickly come to a solution. Um, so the challenge is not the the aspect of finding the solution. The challenge is to get the right people into the same room and have them talk to one another. And what was the biggest misconception when it came to strategy and growth? Um, I think the biggest um, misconception, I mean, I wouldn't say misconception. I think a lot of people, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people undervalue the the, re the, the, the need for strategy. Um, you know, especially in bigger companies, uh, because they think that people and execution is so important. There are three pieces to a puzzle, which is people, strategy, and execution. So if you have the right people, and if you know what you're doing, but if you do not have the right strategy, it not, it's not going to work. So, so strategy is not this kind of a thing where you create pretty decks and go to senior management and make presentations on this like lofty future. That's not strategy. That's probably a you know a kind of an exercise of you know visioning, but a strategy is a a very clear plan to be able to grow the company to a certain level or whatever their goals are uh, that connects the people with execution. Yeah, and I would like to add that, in my opinion, a lot of companies don't like. Yeah, you said it yourself. Don't value the power of strategy, and I and I think it also comes down. To to being patient, like a lot of the time companies just want to hit the ground running and skip the strategy or rush the strategy because it requires deep thinking and time to orchestrate and come up with this strategy. Uh, I will agree to that. So hopefully not repeating ourselves here, but what pitfalls or failures relating to strategy and growth can you share? You know, so strategy and growth depends on the phase of the company you are in. Um, I think the biggest mistake, there are many mistakes, right? As you can imagine, one can make in this process. But the biggest mistake I've seen is that the strategy does not uh, correlate well with the stage of the company. So for example, when you're early stage, very, very early stage, your strategy is going to be quite different than when you're a very late stage company, a big company, Right. Um, so, so I think that is the first thing to kind of really think about what stage of the company is, what are the big risks in that stage? How do you mitigate those risks? Because at a very early stage as a startup, you're basically risk mitigating, right? You're mitigating market risk, product risk, sales risk, customer risk, uh, technology risk. And the strategy is to kind of quickly mitigate that risk to achieve the goal that you want to achieve to go to the next level. So it's a very well-defined, very clear thing to do. 
But when you're a later stage company or a bigger company, Fortune 500 and others, their strategy is, uh, it's almost like portfolio management. Um, I don't know if you heard of that term called portfolio management, where typically they are in multiple businesses, multiple products, multiple end markets. And, and the strategy comes down to where to allocate resources. So, you know, if you have so much of resources available to invest in the company, how do you allocate resources to see the biggest amount of growth in that company? Because it's very rare to kind of mitigate risk at a micro level because the business are quite big by itself. So it's most of a risk allocation strategy. So kind of having that clear thought process, what are the goals and what stage of the company is? And I think kind of avoiding that pitfall of not kind of thinking about it is, I think is quite important. Yeah, I love the portfolio management analogy. I've heard marketers use the same term for spreading your risk in your marketing programs. You know, when you have the budget and luxury of doing that, it's also helping you to mitigate your risk and not putting all your eggs in one basket. But perhaps a follow-up question to, to that would be, what would your top three things be for, for early stage startups? You know, for early stage startups, the biggest thing is risk mitigation. So when you start a company, right, so you have a ton of risk because you do not know much about the market. It's a new product, new company, right? So the quickest way of mitigating risk is where you need to focus on to go to the next level. So uh, I'll give you an, and, and I would say the biggest risk is running out of money, by the way, because most startups start with a very small amount of capital. It could be your capital. It could be friends and family's capital. It's going to run out very quickly. And if you do not put the money in the right area or you know, use the money for the right things, you will run out of money and the business will end. So the, I think the biggest thing to focus on is um, what's the goal that you want to achieve in a certain time frame? could be six months, could be one year, and see that the steps that you're going to take is whether the amount of money is sufficient to go to that point. Um, I think that's it's very simple, but that is the strategy to having a very clear plan for that. And at the same time, if it's a one-year plan and within one month, there is enough evidence that that plan is not working, you have to quickly come back to plan B and see that, okay, does that goal change or do I something else changes so that you you survive as a company in you know, early stage. So, so it's a survival strategy, risk mitigation, survival strategy, and focusing on the big, if you want limited capital for whatever reason that you have the money, then I'll focus on the next biggest thing. Maybe the product works or not. Because even if you have a lot of money, but the product is not working, it's not going to be successful, right? So in, let's say your product is working, but if you cannot get customers, that's the third thing to figure out. So it's a step-by-step process to building it, but kind of focusing on the biggest constraint at any given point. It's great advice. I love the leveling up approach. And then what have been some growth challenges either in your business or other companies that you've advised for? And if you solved it, how did you do it? I mean, growth challenges, um, you know, once you get to the next level in any company and growth becomes the most important factor, um, you know, I, I think the thing that I've seen work best is a very methodical and rational approach to growth. Um, which is, if you think about, depending on what product or service one is selling, and we apply a similar thing for us, our business as well. Where, um, so for you to get growth, you have to know who your customers are. Are they buying the product at the right price point, so that you're actually making money? Are you getting enough leads? What channel are you using to get those leads? 
Are those leads converting into prospects? Are those prospects converting into clients? And then are you able to retain those clients? So essentially, it's a whole journey, right, from the product actually working in the right segment to you being able to retain that customer. If it fails in one level, it's going to fail eventually. Like, if, let's imagine the scenario that you you took them right from the first interest to becoming a customer, but the ch- they churn maybe you know three months in, right? So you may be going through lots of lots of leads and lots of customers, but your growth is not going to show up because you're losing customers, right? So understanding this chain really well and being able to measure this chain in some capacity so that you know what is working, what's not working, and then focusing on that particular issue. Like the issue could be that churn issue or it could be that my leads are not high. So then think about, okay, where do I get more leads? Um, The issue could be that, okay, my leads are very high, but they are not converting to clients. That means the lead quality is not very good based on the product that you have, right? So then, okay, how do I change my channel mix to get higher quality leads? So, so I'm just giving you an example. I think the best way to think about growth is not this thing, which is, okay, I need to go and find more customers because then it's very difficult to analyze, but think it as a more of a chain and then really see what's working, what's not working and focusing all your energy on things that are not working. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really loved hearing all your inputs on this topic. If anyone would like to reach out to you, get in touch Where's the best place for people to connect, pick your yeah, brain? Yeah, so you know there are two areas you can you know check out. One is um, of course our company website, which is yellowdigoneword.co. Um, and if you go there, you can contact us there. You can see how we are. You know, if you have any questions on the product, if you're interested in the product piece of it. And if you want to connect with me directly, um, you know, LinkedIn is probably the best resource. Um, you know, you can search my name in LinkedIn, and I I, I hang out there. So send me a message. I'm happy to connect. Not Twitter. Not so much. For whatever reason, I've never uh, got the hang of Twitter. <laughs> Me too. And sorry, I forgot to ask you, is there anything else you would like to share before we wrap up? No, I think, you know, I, I enjoyed the conversation. I think we talked about quite a few very interesting topics. Um, and I think maybe the last thing I would say is the the community piece that we talked about is, I think there's, there's one thing that is probably uh, a very big untapped potential is building communities. Uh, And especially it's becoming more important right now, especially with this whole working from home, learning from home culture, Uh, because without that, I don't think, you know, the human species can survive without a strong community. So it's not only good for our learning, but it's good for our mental health and everything else. So uh, do pay attention. I mean, you know, if there's one thing, I would definitely pay attention of how you're building communities in your own organization or own environment that you're in. Thanks. That's a great way to end the show. Thank you so much again for joining me today. No, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.